This is the Sensitive Rebel Podcast, and I'm your host, Steve McCready. Join me for conversations with people who see possibilities that compel them to go against the status quo, but who sometimes struggle to do so because of the noise and norms of the world. I call them Sensitive Rebels, and we'll discuss the challenges, successes, and lessons from their journeys as they keep moving forward in their quest to make a difference in the world. Hey there, Sensitive Rebel. Daniel Arthur Smith is my guest today. He's a USA Today and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of speculative fiction. His titles include Spectral Shift, Hugh Howey Lives, The Cathari Treasure, and The Somali Deception, among others. He also curates the short fiction series Tales from the Canyons of the Damned. Daniel was raised in Michigan and graduated from Western Michigan University, where he studied philosophy. Along his career journey, he's worked as a bartender, barista, a poetry house proprietor, a teacher, and a technologist for Fortune 100 companies across America and Europe. Now, whether or not you've read one of Daniel's works, you probably have made use of a technology that he helped develop during his IT career, which is one of the many subjects we cover in our conversation. In addition, you'll hear about how Daniel got stuck in his IT career, the important role that writing plays in his life beyond just as a career, and a whole lot more. Today on the Sensitive Rebel Podcast, I am talking with Daniel Arthur Smith. How's it going, Daniel? Great. How are you doing today, Steve? I am doing real good. Daniel is in Connecticut, where he is unfortunately having to deal with some of the uh, smoke that the uh, West Coast wildfires have have sent him. So I apologize. Not much of a gift from the West here. Well, it's a bit of nature's beauty. I have to say that. It's a shame that it comes from uh, such a tragic source. But it, like all things nature, it's incredible to behold. Such an interesting contrast, right? On the one hand, it is beautiful, but then there's the cause is not such a beautiful thing at all. So that's very true. Well, as an author, seeing a blood moon over the lake for a few consecutive nights, that's like inspiration being spoon fed right to you. I could totally could totally see that. So Daniel, tell me, what are you rebelling against? I, for my life, for all my life, I've been rebelling against mediocrity, against settling. I, I find that there's a constant state of, wanting to do the best that I can do, not necessarily the best that anybody can do, that's unrealistic, but in setting a goal to to do the best that I can do, that's what wakes me up in the morning and that, that guides my day and that pushes my work and all my projects and family life. How far back can you remember having that awareness of seeking excellence and wanting to do better and not settle? It's ironic that you don't know what situation you're in until you can look back with some perspective. When I was young, I thought I had a full life. You know, there was a lot of camping and a lot of roasting hot dogs over the fire. And I basically grew up in the middle of a cornfield and it was great. Heated the house with firewood and I hated having to haul firewood. And, you know, now I basically look back and we grew up probably not on the, on the high end of the financial spectrum. Although I, look back and I appreciate with great nostalgia all the things of growing up in a cornfield, actually literally running through cornfields. And it was evident to me there that I could do better. I, I remember my elementary school teachers being upset with me because I didn't know that I was doing this at the time. I couldn't put a word on it, but I was I was judging. I was seeking a perfection. And of course, because of my immaturity or, or early maturity, it was an unrealistic perfection. I'd look at authority and if you said teacher does A through Z and you know there was no room in there for human fallibility. And I started learning to define this when I was, I actually absolutely remember when I was 12 years old, I read a book by Danny Sugarman. And Danny Sugarman was like the head of the fan club for The Doors. And this book was on Jim Morrison. And the book is a biography titled No One Here Gets Out Alive. And it was, it was pretty popular. I think it was quite famous for some time in the early 80s or whatever that came out. Whenever I read it, it wasn't like it was a <laughs> something from far back on the shelf. And what I found fascinating in that book, one, I was excited because Danny Sugarman, like Cameron Crowe, had started out early on. They, they had seen something. They had got something as a preteen, and they were able to apply it. And I was uh, living in the middle of a cornfield where there's five feet of snow in the wintertime, even before we started talking about climate irregularities. You know, I had plenty of time to read everything that was there quite young. And again, I thought kind of everybody did that. But in reading this book, I, I looked at what Jim Morrison had done at his early age to start investigating these questions and queries. And it put me, it turned me on to Nietzsche. Now, I'm, I'm not at any point going to say that Jim Morrison is any kind of hero. This is a perspective of a 12 year old boy reading a, a very 
easily readable book, but it's the context of the book saying, hey, look at the world a different way. I remember Danny Sugarman spoke about Jim Morrison always walking with his head to the side a little bit to see the world in a little bit different way, which is admittedly a bit cheesy, but it's something. It's, it's at different points in my life and through college, I remember standing on the coffee table and in the great Robin Williams movie, he has everybody stand on the desk. And I think these are important things to not fall into, to not settle into, again, using a word that I wouldn't have used at that time, but mediocrity or just settling. That's kind of how it started out. The idea of perspective taking is a super powerful one, right? I mean, it allows so much. It allows for innovation, allows for new ideas. It allows us to change our moods, any any number of things. And however we go about doing it, whether it's by tilting our head, standing on a desk, what have you, those things still have value in whatever they might sound like. And I'm always been a fan of whatever gets people to take action is a great way of presenting something, right? And so if it's putting in this book, talking about uh, Jim Morrison and how he hung his head to the side, that gets someone like you and as a younger you thinking and looking at that, that's still influential and impactful, whether or not it's cheesy, cliched or any of those things, you know? The, the the funniest thing there, I look at my sons now, I have a 13-year-old son, an 11-year-old son, I can't imagine them interested in Nietzsche. And people have asked me, like, how is it you started reading Nietzsche at 12? I mean, I wasn't any type of savant. But in that way, having, of all things, Jim Morrison being the, the gateway to, you know, reading Nietzsche and the idea of, I, I think Nietzsche, I'm not a great defender, I think there are a lot of flaws with the individual, but I think he's misunderstood due to the political movements and the war. I think they got it wrong. But I'm talking about a personal journey, and and I'm talking about something that later I learned through academia, that's what the Greeks referred to, I mean, there's no way for us to pronounce it, but arete or arita, or, but it's the it's aspiration to excellence, but it's utilizing Aristotle's golden mean, like what's excellent for you. If you're a ditch digger, that's fine. Be the best ditch digger. If you're a horse trainer, be the best horse trainer. And these are virtues I've worked to instill in my children. But even with perspective, my kids were born in New York City, Manhattan. They walked to school in Manhattan. They saw things I didn't see in a cornfield early on, you know, walking to kindergarten, first grade. You know, there are homeless people sleeping on the sidewalks. There's acts of violence. It's Manhattan. It's New York. Is everything it's ever been advertised to be, believe you and me. But one of the big ways I was able to speak to my oldest about it, who's always been very introspective, is the concept of the third eye. You know, use your third eye. Because rather than him waiting for him to get turned out of Jim Morrison or, or Nietzsche, I wanted him to be able to have what used to be termed as mindfulness. I think mindfulness has evolved to have more to do with meditation and that aspect of it. But when I was studying in school, the idea of my, mindfulness it was yeah, you're being aware of your surroundings. And then there's a problem solving involved with that. And, and then again, this goes back to a study of cognitive evolution and, and our makeup. So that's an exercise I do with my children. What do you see? And then quiz them on it later. Well, let's look at things. Let's, let's develop that muscle. And we're talking about perspective. And this is why I bring it back around. Talking about perception as a muscle to exercise, to utilize, to stretch, to get the most out of, to do these thought exercises, to pull from your surroundings especially in a place as rich as a midtown Manhattan. I'm curious, this practice that you have, have taught your kids, which I think is such a fabulous one from the standpoint of supporting awareness and attunement, how do you think it has affected them, their development, and how they go about being in the world so far? In their own way, they're both quite insightful young men. My youngest son is far more gregarious and social and needs to be out there and needs to see people. And the state of the world <laughs> for the last 14 months has definitely taken a greater toll on, on him for that. But the game that we've ventured to with him is connect the dots. And so he's getting very good at that. He's getting very good at taking those observations and moving it towards implication. My older son He's very different. He sees the world as it is, and, and it's very direct. And, and, and sometimes we have to work to connect the dots. He calls things pretty much black and white. Now, fortunately, he's a very compassionate young man. He has a lot of empathy, and he's very sweet. So I'm glad of that because I think some of those same traits of seeing things so directly uh, could be cold. And could, but, but, but that, that doesn't seem to be, at least at this point, where he, his point of view is exactly. If, if, if he sees somebody behave a certain way, that's it. But then that leads him to ask questions. I remember one of his first notes of adolescent philosophy 
was whether good people could do bad things or bad people could do good things. And, and that came from the Marvel universe and, and villains and these other uh, messianic tales we bring into the house in lieu of a lot of religion. We're taking our culture, the messianic tales and culture. And, and so that ties into how he's looking at the world and, and him growing up in New York. And, you know, it's funny that for the last 14 months affected him in a different way that he was kind of happy as pie. The pandemic has affected different people very differently. And certainly there's a, a very large introvert, extrovert sort of division there for sure because of uh, the, those two differences and how they, they play out from an interaction with others and engaging the world standpoint. As you kind of look back at your childhood of growing up in a cornfield, as you said, what were the things about that that you would say were maybe more challenging or difficult than it might be for someone who grew up in a, not so much more typical, but who grew up in a big city or in just an average sized city? Yeah, I think where you grow up, that's the place to be. I, th I think what was weighing on me is the differences in... Um, the lifestyle of, of my peers. For example, I didn't participate in any athletics as a child and all, all the other young fellows in my class were in a little league or, or baseball. So they'd show up in, in second grade with their uniforms and that was, that played a big role. And then when it was recess time, we were outside playing sports and because they developed the athletics, they were much better. And so that takes a toll on children going up to adolescence. And then is a big influence. I mean, it's, it's probably why I became a big reader and a big writer. And the other challenges were there, there were some issues in the, in the home, maybe related to financial or all tied together. So those, again, at the time, you think that everybody is experiencing these issues and challenges. So books were a refuge and because of what they did. So in our society, authors at different times in history, in recent history, were never really thought about as an elevated profession. I was born in 68 and I started really reading a lot into the late 70s. And with the libraries, there was a big push towards reading. My great-grandparents were essentially illiterate. My grandparents weren't strongly illiterate. I was the first in my family line to end up going to university. So, so I was taught that writing was kind of a sacred thing and an elevated thing. So it wasn't just a refuge. It was considered to be a very worthy way to spend my time. My, my grandmother used to, get, used to be able to get these green stamps at the grocery store. And with that, you can purchase things. And so she purchased an encyclopedia set, one edition at a time. This wasn't the four-inch thick Encyclopedia Britannica editions of the world book that we had in the library. These were, it was a Funkin' Wagnalls was the publishing company. So these were maybe an inch thick. So it wasn't everything there is to know. And I, I read them from cover to cover. I was also reading Sir Arthur Cannon Doyle. There were these little fat books that you used to get as a kid. So they'd buy me those in quantity. And it was Three Musketeers. And so even today, I'm pretty much a classicist because that, that's just what I was uh, fed on. And so what I'm hearing is refuge or not, the other part was there is was, was an elevation of sorts of being someone who read and was engaged with literature and all of that, that that was something that was seen as uh, sort of an up-leveling, kind of coming back to that idea of, of not settling for mediocrity. I was spending my time with my heroes. These are people that I understood to have risen above mediocrity. Now, to be fair, as an adult understanding the publishing business now and in the past, I was giving them probably a lot more credit than was due at the time. You take, for example, Dickens. You know, I read a lot of Dickens, and 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 I mentioned Arthur Conan Doyle. That that was pulp at the time. They weren't revered as great writings, and the fact that they were just sheer entertainment and auteurs of their of their tropes and story types and the way they package them, you know, they survived and they survived well. And they're icons, or at least their characters are icons. So in that way, I could, I could definitely say I, I was right in projecting this status, this elevated status. I certainly couldn't have articulated it to that degree or understand it to that degree at that time. I, I knew that was something that wasn't around me. Something and I, I, I want to throw in a friend of mine, Somebody I, I grew up with kindergarten with through sixth grade with high school, she went to Central Michigan and got her teaching degree, and she went back, and she, she just retired this year, which is always a wake-up when people that you grew up with have hit retirement age. She's a, She was an English teacher for 33 years. So this wasn't something that was like I was the odd duck in my classroom. This was something that was being given to us as a gift, that this could lift you up. Now, I have to add some context. I talked about like my home, things weren't all that great. So I came of age in the 80s when a large part of the Midwest, you know, the Steel Belt became the Rust Belt. And I 
grew up in northern Michigan, which relied on the uh, economy of the automobile industry, which famously, from Michael Moore's movies, you know, Roger and me, you know, went away. And, and, you know, I grew up north of Flint. And, you know, when I was a child, Flint was Flint was amazing. It was it was a very upscale city. We, everybody from my town went down to Flint to go shopping. And so hitting that depression, I had a 10th grade civics teacher tell us, you have to study. You have to get out of here. We can't support you here. We don't want you here. I, you know, not to me personally, but to the class. I, I grew up in an area not much unlike Western Europe or most of America, where you would do what your parents did and and probably not aspire to do much more because it was it was ready made and the blue collar path or white collar path was pretty much laid out for you for limiting. All of a sudden, that wasn't limiting. And then on top of that, again to mediocrity and settling. Even though there were teachers or the educators that were saying, hey, you need to develop new skills. You need to look at college. You need to be the person to go to college. There was a mentality which still exists in the northern part of the Midwest and some parts of the country. It's who are you to go to college? Who are you to do X, Y, Z? Who, you're going to write a book? Come on. You're not one of those people that writes books. We read books. The best of us read books. That's You can get to the best you know, that's, that is what we aspire to be able to appreciate what they, them, the other. So these all, this all ties together when you're looking around and saying, Hey, wait a minute. I think I can learn this craft. I don't want to confuse that with I'm destined for greatness. I think I have something to say that's so profound that I will be elevated to that point. I, I think there's always a degree of hubris. It should be an aspiring to do anything. But really what was the motivator there is you need a little craft. And it's not going to work. You know, we had the world's largest cement plant when I was a kid and our town was very rich. And then what happened when I was in junior high is they shut our school system down because the cement plant closed. And we were the first school system in the United States to have to close their doors because the tax base dropped out from underneath us. And everybody wore these black little armbands. And I remember seeing a helicopter, the old bubble kind of helicopter flying over the school. It was CBS News, a helicopter. Up in northern Michigan, there's no helicopters up in northern Michigan, right? So this was like big news. This was, a, you, you had to make a choice. Now, some of the kids, they decided they wanted to be rock stars. We had an incredible music scene coming out of northern Michigan that still goes goes forward today. Unfortunately, I, I could never really keep a rhythm on an instrument. I still play with musical instruments, but to, to say that I actually play them is a bit of a reach for sure. I, I like so, to say more enthusiastic than skilled when I'm discussing my <laughs> guitar playing. So maybe that applies well, to you as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think the two, two of us probably have a lot of fun jamming and that would probably be the end of that. No great recording contracts coming our way. Right. No one might have fun listening besides us, but we would definitely have fun playing together, <laughs> I suspect. Now, exactly. So this is interesting to me coming back to your high school and really this awareness that where you were, there wasn't really a future there and this encouragement or almost directive of you need to go to college. And did that influence your decisions as far as past high school where you're already planning to go to college or kind of let's talk about the, the steps in your journey? So, you know, the chicken or egg, which happened first? I was fortunate enough that I had these interests and then some opportunities that were happening within the government to help out the Midwest and other parts of the country that were suffering through this series of things happened that spoke to me directly. So the first one was a program. The program was called Upward Bound. And Upward Bound, a group of children, predominantly from probably a lower financial class, that were deemed to have academic potential, but statistically were not going to make it out of high school, much less make it into university. And so they recruited us to this program. And, you know, all my buddies were in it, and they, they gave us stipends. So when you did your work and you maintained a grade, you received a stipend. We stayed in a dormitory for the first couple of years, but I think that fell apart, but it was a local college dormitory. And you stay there for, I want to say, four weeks. And during that time, you're receiving supplemental education to really get you to those advanced coursework, or at least for some people, it's probably just at least maintain their coursework, sort of mathematics, English. And the big part of that was personal mentorship. Some of the people that ran that program and mentored that program, and I'm still acquainted with them today. I tell you, look back in the last 40 years, they weren't slouching. That wasn't their peak. They've gone on to do amazing things as individuals. And, and so I feel so fortunate that I had a chance to have that mentorship. And mentorship has been a theme throughout my life. So that was probably some of the first real positive mentorship of kind of get your act together. Because I wasn't, due to things going on at home, I wasn't a great student. I, I 
because I didn't do the work. And I didn't always show up, you know? So they're like, hey, if you show up and you just do the work, this is, a, this is something I teach my son today. Show up, just do the work, do the best you can and you'll succeed. I'll tell you, leap forward, a little snapshot secret working in the corporate world. A lot of people I worked for and worked for me just showed up. You know? and so there is, a, there is a path there. Maybe it's not the optimum path, but it's definitely a baseline. So that mentorship developer bound program really drew me in. Everyone else was saying, who are you to write these books? Who are you to do this? Who are you to? It's, yeah, you can. You in particular can do something. They took us to, uh, part of the program was to take us on a tour of the universities of Michigan, which were at that time, I'd still like to think today, prominent schools in the United States. You know, like a second Ivan, University of Michigan, Central Michigan State, Western Michigan, and then up in the Northern Peninsula, Northern Michigan, Marquette. These even today are Brilliant schools with brilliant programs. Some of these programs are very unique. And they took us as young children, 12 years old, 13 years old, 14 years old, took us to the school, put us in the dorms, gave us the tour of campus and said, this is, this can happen. This can happen. Without that, I'm not sure I'd be where I am today. That was definitely the gateway. That was a path out. So that led you to college and out of the, the cornfield. Tell me about. You know, what your college experience was like, and then post that, how you entered into the professional world and some of that journey. So this is where things get very interesting for me. I had made a decision that I wanted to be a writer early on. I, I, another student, one of my best buddies in sixth grade, we have a little yearbook when you matriculate from elementary school to middle school, and, it, and, you, and you try to decide what people are going to be doing in 10 years, 15 years. And something I found common with a lot of writers is you, if you're a writer and you have a history of writing, you start creating your first full length prose around fifth grade. That seems maybe some people's a little bit earlier. Maybe there's some poems and things. I, I think I won a po a award at the library for a poem in third grade. I, I know I did. So my sixth grade, I remember he put it, it's like Daniel says going to be an author of scary books. Uh, Stephen King was a new author at the time, 40 years ago. And I was kind of really drawn like, wow, this is crazy. Look, he's saying stuff that people say. So that was great. So knowing and deciding, yes, this is something I'm going to do. I chose a path. Upward Bound helped that path. But I didn't go. I didn't graduate and go directly to school, to, to a bigger school. I went a very untraditional route because part of the path that I saw for myself was an existential path. I wanted to experience life. I wanted to have things to write about. I was really into the human condition. Remember, I was reading Nietzsche, and then I was reading all these other philosophical books with it, and I was reading a lot of dramatic fiction. And I was, at that time, I think I was very keen on psychology as wanting to study that as part of my path. And then some crazy things happened that were, well, they were crazy at the time. So I ended up out of my parents' home as a young teen, and ended up living, you know, living as a minor and renting a space and working at a restaurant. I did not graduate. I did not receive my diploma. And rather than going right to college, I, I knew that I was going to go to college, but I hitchhiked across the United States. That was my thing to do. And then I decided that I was going to go back to school and get, get a GED. I should say before that, I was thinking that I was going to go in the military. There was a big faint push at that time for the buddy programs and, and the, mid 80s because they no longer had the draft the draft had been gone for whatever 10 15 years and they were having an issue with recruitment so again from a economically depressed area a lot of kids in my class went to the military i thought i would do that as well and talking to my father who was living in california went out there he had he had been in vietnam and and he was not an advocate of the service and, and there was a great deal of discussion about that, but the compromise was if I went to university and then went in as an officer, that would be different. Fast forward, I mean, friends that did go in the service are getting out of the service and friends that had gone directly into the university are getting out of university. And I'm saying, I'm still working like pickup jobs. I'm still writing on the side, doing my experiential thing, but I've seen different people come back at different states. I'm like, wow, you know, we need to do something. So what I ended up doing is I was back in Michigan. I was working as a mason tender where you actually haul cement blocks and you haul concrete, you're making mud, you make concrete. I was, that's hard labor. There's some great benefits to that, that when you lay a cornerstone, I can take my sons to buildings where we put the cornerstone down and I can say, look, I did that with your cousin or whatever, because we're all pretty much interrelated up there. I did that for a bit, but yeah, I'm watching the guys come to work and they're like 45 years old, which seemed quite old when I was 21. And their faces are like leather and they're bronzed and they're opening up their lunch boxes at seven in the morning and they're pulling out rye whiskey 
and they're having that for breakfast. And and I, I'm like, wow, that's my future. That's what happens when you get old. And I said, okay, I need to. I've been having a lot of fun. I, you know, I've, I've been surfing. I've traveled a great deal. I like I said, I hitchhiked back across across the United States at the time you could do that. And uh, I said, I'm going to go get the GED or whatever. Well, I went to talk to some people about that, and they said, well, you can go to the local college. But if you get an associate's degree, it's kind of the same thing. And then, uh, I, I remember the big part of this, I took a test and I tested very well. So that put me on the path of getting to university. And again, all that was looking at coursework, creating a curriculum for myself that was interdisciplinary, that pulled in aspects of the human condition, aspects of psychology. I started out very psychology heavy and shifted to philosophy because I ended up moving from the local college once I took all the core work and got that all the way, so I just focus on the areas of, of study that were the big questions, trying to tackle big questions. I ended up going to Western, and I was there through some great times. I was able to focus on philosophy and then, oddly enough, on comparative religion, because the head of the comparative religion department was a philosopher of science, and he was tackling, it wasn't a theocracy, this is looking at religious systems and creating taxonomies and breaking them down. And so this was all the early, early uh, stemmings of what would become cognitive science. I mean, it was already called that then, but keep in mind, we didn't really have computers to model things on in the same way. So I was the first person in that program to be dual enrolled as an undergraduate and a graduate student. So there were a lot of opportunities. There were a lot of small classroom settings. It was great. It was great. And then out of school, you didn't immediately go into a writing career, right? No. So while I was in school, I wrote for the school newspaper and I was looking at what are other writers doing? You know, now you're in, now you're in a pool of other people that may have similar aspirations as you. And ideally that's the case because you want to be able to help each other and learn from each other. And, and I'm fortunate enough for my college experience in that way. I was surrounded by some incredible people and ended up living in a house that was just men and women, kids at that time, babies, were living together in a house. And these are friends. Yeah, I'm fortunate enough, I'm with who I can say I have friends to this day that I uh, came up with. And even though I don't see them, and they're in all parts of the country being superheroes in their own way, amazing things. So I was writing for the paper, and I saw that that was a path. Friends of mine were saying, well, to be a writer, I want to write novels. The path would be to continue writing journalism. Hemingway was a journalist. That was a big thing at the time. And he was still, you know, he was still in both. So uh, that was a choice. Or the other one was like, no, go out and have some experience, live some life, do some things. And then when I've gathered all that together, then go to publish. So in retrospect, having lived in New York, not knowing then what I know now, the journalism might've been a bit easier path, possibly, but I don't know that I would have the worth of experience that I have. One, one does not know. One does not know. But there were definitely two valid paths, and I, and I chose the one. So the way that went about is while I was in grad school, my roommate, who was an engineer, it's a big engineering college, Western Michigan, still with the auto industry, he was having some challenges finding a job as an engineer that I thought was going to be a shoe-in from his program. And good to say that he did get that, but he didn't get it immediately. And one of the things they feed us in school, and it's gotten worse, is you know they set you up to think that you're going to take all this knowledge and you're going to go drop it on the world and the world's going to embrace you and probably throw money at you. And kids, if you're listening, that's not how that works. So I panicked a little bit. I was on a bit of a summer break. And so I took a job doing, basically we called it AI at that time. It was analyzing data to come up with future probability. And that path, that kind of plan B took over for pretty much the next 20 some years. So that's, that's kind of the route that I took before I started writing. Now I was writing the full time. I was also having experiences. The thing about that plan B, it was working in technology and in the nineties and into the odds, that was a very fruitful place to be. And I, I didn't have a wife or children. So there was a lot of a lot of opportunities. And I and I was working project-based. I'd always been a project-based person. I like to set goals. And so it worked well that I could do a job and then go live in Prague for a while and, and then do another job and go do something else. So I, that's why I say, you know, if I had I stuck with journalism, I, I may have been tied down or had more parameters and I could have gotten to writing that way, but I didn't. I went out and did the world, but, but I have this this huge depth of experience to pull from and perception from living in different places in the world. It sounds like it, it supported you being able to have a number of different experiences, get to see different things. And it, you said technology in the 90s, also from a financial standpoint, probably a little bit better paid than journalism. Make, make no joke. I grew up in a cornfield and I was offered a position early on that was more money than I thought I would ever make. 
because I was studying psychology. Even then, I, I remember thinking that if I could become an author, I, I didn't have any illusions that I would be a celebrity author. I remember that'd be fine. I'd take it. But authors were making a medium income at that time that was far less than what they're offering in technology. It was all the money I could ever imagine in the world at that time. Ultimately, you ended up walking away from that work. As you were going along doing the technology work and writing, were you doing that with the thought that at some point I'm going to walk away from the technology and shift to just write? Yes, always, always. So one of my college roommates was an artist. He went on to get his MFA and he's a teacher now. He had mentioned that the whole idea of being a starving artist is not cool. This is not, like, not fun. No one's aspiring to be a starving artist. I didn't have a ready-made inheritance or trust fund or financial package to launch into writing, which some of my friends have and people I work with, hey, Movie for them. That's great. So I did need to rely on that plan B for a while. There were several points early on before marriage where these were deals I made with myself. I'm going to do this for a year. I'm going to do this for two years. Working in the corporate world, I, I was very good at what I did with work, but I, but I couldn't stand. I, I hated apart from the part of doing the best that I could do and, and creating something. I really enjoyed creating. And the fact that I wasn't hauling concrete, remember, I was hauling concrete when I started this. I was hauling big cubes you see on the back of trucks of big cement blocks. I'm working on lakes where me and the other worker, it's like they drop them off on the road that's 50 meters away and you're hauling them by noon, you're changing gloves three times. So in that aspect, things were super, right? But there came a point when it wasn't. You know, I kept making these deals to myself that I'm out of here. I don't want to do that. The first time it was a company I'd worked with and this was the company actually that I had stepped away from. I stepped away from grad school because I was making all the money in the world and they were going to pay for a different master's degree. And I thought, well, maybe instead of getting a master's in philosophy, I'll get an MBA. And that seemed to be a thing to do at that time. So I was working around the clock. I see, I, I gave everything to there and it cost me personal relationships. And I thought that would be a direct path to some kind of escape or whatever. And then what ended up happening is we were sold to the competition and I went into this huge state of depression because I, the work I created was gone. And, and that would become a, a theme in working in technology. That was became the final straw, which shifted me back to writing full-time. What I ended up doing is I went to a job interview for Whirlpool. I was ahead of the game again because I knew about PCs and mainframes. And I'd already done some programming on these brand new handheld devices that Apple had called Newtons that had pictures you could write on them and you know, palm technology, I ended up being offered the job. But what happened in the meantime is that I drove back from St. Joe to Kalamazoo, where I'd gone to school, and I'm driving by all these newly built McMansions with a sedan, and an SUV was a new thing at the time. People still had sedans. And I'm like, no. The bullet I dodged there that first time is I'd kind of gotten so into being good at doing the technology and seeing that as a path and seeing that well, what I'm going to do now. Because keep in mind, I had no writing career. I was writing, but I was writing at home. I wasn't sending anything in. And and then at that time, you needed to create a whole clean, polished manuscript, mail it to New York City, right? This is what was the world was at that time. So I looked at all these things. I'm like, is that what I want? Am I ready to move into the McMansion? And of course, there was a resounding no. And my rationale at that moment in time is, well, I had a little bit of money because that business had sold and I was rewarded. But it was like, well, I could go anywhere and do anything. And I thought about going down to New Orleans because that was a place that we used to like to go. But yeah, but you know what? I'll just fall into my traps of, I'll go look for another technology company. I mean, you know, it's not going to be removed enough. A friend had just returned from Prague and, and Prague had just opened up. This is the early 90s. It was the new Paris. It was the Wild East. And so I sold everything I owned. I sold everything. I bought this thing. It was called Air Hitch. This is way before 9-11. And you get like this punch card it was basically a voucher to fly on standby. And I decided I was going to go to Europe and bounce around Europe for a while. And I was supposed to go to Luxembourg and I was going to cut down to Prague. And then there was like the 100 year storm. That was the first 100 year storms. They just had another one this last week, but that's the first of the 100 year storms. And so there were no flights going in. So we are leaving right now in a half hour to Madrid. And so I boarded a plane to Madrid. That was Iberian Airlines. That's when People were still smoking cigarettes and the you know, whole fuselage is full of smoke. And so I took off to, to Europe. That was the change. Now, I have to say what ended up happening, fast forward, is I started making bargains because I wanted to aspire to get to a point where I could write full time. And that's why I ended up getting back into technology and bigger projects. But it started eating more and more of my soul. And then the, the catalyst was when I had my children, and this brings it back to you, you work on these great things. I worked on a five-year project to bring paper checks 
to the digital world. So if you take a picture of a check to deposit it, you're working with the software, a project I managed for five years. It was huge. It was great. I'm very proud of it. That's probably the cherry on my technology career. But like everything else I had done back with masonry and with technology, a lot of that, people don't write checks so much anymore. All that stuff disappears. And and I didn't want to have that on my tombstone. I didn't want, I really wanted to give my kids a bookshelf. That was the catalyst. That was the change in direction. So it's really a, a drive for a sense of legacy of leaving something that's going to be here long after you're gone. That could be here really forever indefinitely. You having as a child read these old works and having seen the ability of literature and writing to endure across history. There was a subtle bit of hubris that came with that because I was very fortunate up till that time. I'd been an uber kind in technology just because I knew what a PC was. It's vacant when you look at the work that you're doing and it's just, it just disappears. It's just gone. And so I had to get out of that. And again, so the hubris was, even though I had done those other things, everything I had touched, it turned to gold. I, I had a series of great adventures. And, you know, while I was in Europe, I ended up teaching over there for a couple of years. And I came back from Europe initially and I opened a coffee shop poetry house that Again, I, I became the mentor for younger people. There's some kids that used to hang out in the coffee shop from my small town. One's now a movie director with movies that have been to the huge, you know, the prominent festivals. And again, a lot of rock stars because I created a venue. And, and, and simply by traveling the world and coming back, a lot of kids looked at that as a healthy path to travel and get out. And I still hear from them. And I, so these are rewarding things. All these things were great and everything seemed to be working out really super well. You know, I moved to the East Coast after having the shop. I got a job right away and it was incrementally more money and more of this and more of that. So when I made that decision to step away and write a book, I thought I'm not going to be a celebrity author necessarily, but I'll write a novel. I'm a pretty good writer and I will sell that. And then we'll start that career. Kids, if you're listening, the publishing world doesn't work like that. The publishing world does not work at all the way some of these worlds do. So Tell us about how you kind of got through that initial phase of, here, I'm going to do this thing. And then it's like, hello, reality check. Yeah, it was a slap in the face. But I was fortunate that I wasn't alone in the universe when this was happening. So I had made a decision with my wife because I was you know, a big part of the technology thing. I was traveling a lot. So we decided that when I turned 40, in fact, when I was 40, I had a big party and I had created like a bunch of savings. I had a plan. And I said, well, I'm going to work on this for a year or so. And what ended up happening is, so I turned 40 in September of 2008. And we had that party. And I had all the savings put aside, sports for a year. And my birthday's on September 14th. And on September 15th, Lehman Brothers closed it. So that was interesting in and of itself. That I had planned on living off this amount I put aside, which, of course, I had invested. And its value drops overnight. So not a whole lot. And my position, which I had already, I was already on my way out of it. My position was kind of gone around that same time. Now, I didn't, I didn't ruffle my feathers too much. I was still very confident in the writing. I, like everybody else living in New York at that time, I'd gone through a transition on 9-11 where I went from being employed to 9-12. I was unemployed. And that was definitely a valley and definitely a lot of, I'm going to live a better life, a fuller life. A lot of invigorating personal philosophies came out of that. So in 2008, I said, all right, that's fine. I plan to take time off. It's not quite how I envisioned it to be because, uh, you know, I, I thought I'd have this big pie to kind of dip into and maintain the lifestyle that that wasn't there. But like I said, I wasn't in it alone. And it wasn't even just other New Yorkers. It, you know, it was, it was the whole world for the 2008 financial crisis. So where I did have the benefit is I had a plan what to do with that time. And so I had small children and at that time it was a lot more easy to actually write and manage the children. My wife had her flower business. So that maintained, even though that was also, everything was in a law. But that's what got me through is overcoming the adversity of what was happening, not just to me, but to everybody else. And then in the writing, staying in it, that created a series of market situations. And of these market situations, you know, one of them is publishing all of a sudden dried up in tradition, in the traditional standpoint and shifted to uh, self-publishing, which would become indie publishing, which would shift, you know, small presses that had been bought up and sucked up by the larger presses, but this created an emergence of new small press. So there's a, a lot of things going on that I was going through as well, but some of them became barriers, new challenges that weren't there a year or two before, but I was positioned in a way to tackle that and handle it. And so it was through that positioning and mindset that 
Perseverance is key. Let's talk a little bit about your writing and the, the types of writing that you do. It's about the human condition. It's about people. It's about relationships. It's about how people deal with their surroundings. I think a lot of writers would say that's what they write. But so it really comes down to the delivery system. Now, I had thought, I remember being a classicist, I thought that I would be a, you know, what they call as its own genre, like a literary fiction. So I thought I'd be writing literary fiction. And the first book that I did write was literary fiction. That was close to a Nick Sparks thing. But I, I thought it was really great. And I put it out there in the world. And uh, then I met the reality of commercialism. And I was the editor that was St. Martin's. So you, know, you don't have enough sex. Because <laughs> you know, obviously, you need to have more sex in here. And I'm like, oh, okay. That wasn't what I was going for at all. But it just gives you an idea of these are the little perils that you run into. It definitely guided what I was working on and the ways I was approaching. I'll, I'll say that. For you, what are the kinds of things that, I'll say, inspire your writing or inspire specific things that you write about? Is this is it informed by day-to-day events of things you're thinking about? Or how does the, like a, a work that you create, how does it come into being? So to follow up on the last, I had started writing literary fiction. What I ended up doing and what inspires me is I ended up shifting to what in the industry we call speculative fiction, which is a type of science fiction, but it's closer to what if the world were to go in a different direction, what if it's an alternate history or an alternate future or alternate applications of current technology or maybe invented technology, which becomes the science fiction part, but not so much that it's like a magic mirror that you walk through to another place, but maybe just a, a, a watch that can keep track of your heartbeat and saves your life, which stories written about that not that long ago, but now that is a reality. So that's the great thing about writing, writing in the future. So I'm inspired by most everything around me to, I remember something, like a novel that came out after the fact, but one of the things I was really intrigued with was the idea of having a console, like an Apple smartphone on your wrist. And I wrote that into a novel. By the time I sold the novel, it had been on TV and everywhere. It became like a trend in a mind. It's, it's, now it's a reality. I, I think you can actually buy some cheap versions of that that somehow they line up with your uh, point of sight, line of sight. The speculative fiction, it's a way to sort of play in a sense, what if, and to ponder and explore things that strikes me as something that where it could be a real useful vehicle for processing some of the thoughts, worries, fears, or, or just noise that we can all have in our head. Is, is that one of the purposes it serves for you, would you say? Let me break that down. Back to the whole idea of looking at mediocrity and settling and aspiring to do better, there needs to be a measurement for that. But it needs to be a measurement that's obtainable. So the measurement that I always found successful for me was setting goals. In academia, as a student, in, in, in the corporate world, in a project management capacity, uh, I, you know, I had a professor that said, don't ever try to eat the whole pie. Eat a piece of the pie. So what ends up happening with literature is you basically, whether it's a piece of short fiction or short fiction in an overall themed anthology that maybe you're creating in a body of work, or particularly if it's a novella or a novel, it's a series of short pieces, short projects. You have a, a mental checklist. Now, it doesn't matter. Like some people, they say they're a pantser. They sit down, they write the story from beginning to end. They know where they want to go. It involves that. That's fine. Or maybe, maybe you're an outliner where you say, no, I, I want to hit these heavy beats as I go through it. But regardless of, of your approach, there are goals that you uncover as you go through it. So the measurement of, am I getting past what I would consider to be mediocre? Am I doing the best? Now, sometimes maybe it's just on an opening line. Sometimes it's a chapter. Usually it's a chapter. And you piece those successes together until you get the whole. And then that's what, then you end up polishing it. And I'm not sure, you know, it's for the reader to decide whether or not what I've embedded in a story or in a novel, whether or not they receive that message. If there's a message there, some people say they don't necessarily like message work, but I think even, you know, I challenge a writer, even if it's just an action packed uh, story of just action, I, I believe everything has some type of message. But then again, I'm a symbol monger and I'm highly analytical. So I could probably analyze a uh, tax form or instructions on shampoo and tell you some subtle psycho babble of what it means and what it represents mirrored back to society. So maybe I'm the worst judge of that. But anyways, that's how I, that's how I get there no matter what size work it is. Now, in addition to your writing, you also do some work with anthologies, correct? Yeah. This is the hard part of stepping away from the corporate world or stepping away from even academia, bigger things. I was just, I was just mentioning about projects. So something I do well is I like to do a whole lot of things that are tied together and overlap to work towards our greater thing. And so a novel is enough of it in itself, but in stepping away 
from the corporate world, right? A high, the high pressure of huge projects and, and external demands coming out all the time. Having just my own demand for a project, a solitary project, was, believe it or not, as hard and tough as it is, was actually kind of lacking. And I find this with a lot of uh, second career writers that they need to create something bigger than what they're working at to aid some, some way. So some of them create how to write manuals. They develop like whole how to write. Maybe some of them it's how to market. You make know, it's other ways to give back to the craft. Some of them teach. Teaching becomes a bigger thing. And sometimes it's not a necessity. Sometimes we don't sell a lot of what we're working on to pay pay the rent. Even if you're selling, I mean, that's another reality. Kids, if you're listening, you can sell a few thousand books a week, but at a quarter a piece, you know, it doesn't add up you know, a whole lot. If that dies down to a few hundred bucks a week, you, know, you need to supplement that income to work on the next thing. So what I saw as a need with the way that the marketing was shifting for the sale of books, rather than just sending stuff into magazines, magazines were disappearing off, off the shelf and not in a good way, right? They weren't being published in the same way anymore. Things are going digital. At that time, the payment scheme for Indie Press to write a short story, you, you just really wouldn't be able to get a return on it. And the reason being is if you write a short story that's like 20 pages, the minimum that you're able to price that most of these, and it doesn't matter if you're a big, if you're Simon Schuster or if you're just a small little press like I ended up creating, there's a minimum price you can put on something. And so in this society where now we expect a whole lot of stuff for free or expect quite a, a lot of content or material for a little bit, putting a 99 cent paywall on a five page short story. It, it, it was just really rough. You know, people aren't going to, I even find myself like, do I want to spend a dollar for five? You know, you, you can't help it because that's the way we're being trained. So I saw a problem in need of a solution. And that was to take some of my shorts that I had written and rather than sell them individually, I would put them together. Now, other authors were having the same issue. And, you know, I got to say the other thing that was kind of lousy about it, which directly affects your sales and may have weighed more at the time is because people had to pay 99 cents. They may leave a bad review. So it's like, hey, you know, I bought this story for a dollar, but I didn't realize that it's like a Twilight Zone story, even though it's called the Twilight Zone story or something of the sorts. And so maybe they give it a four star or a three star. And then the way that these algorithms are put together is then people go to buy, whether it's a self-help book or fiction or a magazine, but they're going to look at the five star things. I do it too. We all do that. So that wasn't really a fair system at that time, I, I would say. And by the way, Amazon is one of the big, the biggest, they've been working very hard and are working all the time to try to change that. They have a new product line out to circumvent that, but that's for the long. So what I ended up creating with Tales from the Canyons of the Dam is I put together for a Halloween issue, the first Tales from the Canyons of the Dam. And Canyons of the Dam was a play on the idea that going through Midtown, those are the canyons of the dam. I think it was a quote from Vonnegut way back, something he had said in him. I don't even know if it was something written or something. I don't, I don't remember now. But I remember that it was Vonnegut. I have to credit him. And I put it out and I had included, I'm not even sure if I included another author in the first issue. I think I put one out and it did really well. And then some of my author friends contacted me and said, hey, that's great. I have this story. I have no place for it. There's no market. And market is what we call like a magazine, like Asimov's or whatever else you would send to, or even Nature Magazine. And says, there's no market I can really send it to, but I think it would really fit your Twilight Zone-ish type of stories that are fitting here. So I included him. Well, once I included another author, now that was issue number two. Now we have something. And then then we started getting other authors. So now, when I, now I'm at a point where we only open the market for a short window per year. We get thousands of submissions, and it's really a challenge. We did slow down on publication, again, due to algorithm issues, this is a like, very fine business thing. We shifted from monthly to quarterly just to get it in front of the eyes of people because you aren't working with a newsstand anymore where you're putting it right there. Even though this is in print, you can order it in print. You're working with the way that the algorithms work on Amazon is if you put a new book out, they suggest your last book. So if you put out a series and we're up to issue 39 now, they kind of end up burying themselves. So we've been working on different experimental ways to market them and perpetuate it. But yeah, that's become a full business of its own. Yeah. So I, on the one hand, I'm like hearing this, you recognizing, hey, there's this problem here. There's this need here. So I'm going to go ahead and create something to address it. Then it runs into this other challenge, which is so often true, right? With any sort of uh, a creation or business endeavor, we solve one problem then we discover another problem. But I'm, I'm thinking about this and these challenges from a um, really they're talking about in a sense a, a marketing problem here. And I would imagine just 
one, the process of trying to get oneself published is its own challenge as a writer. At least that's you know what I'm telling telling myself. But then two, the, the challenges of then getting visibility for your work, getting it published, learning how to navigate with the, the various challenges of the world. As I'm thinking about this, I find myself feeling a little bit like, oh my God, overwhelmed. And I, I can remember like, this is probably part of why younger me was like, yeah, this writing thing, don't do it. But how do you navigate those challenges and obstacles and what I would imagine would be the inevitable frustrations and thoughts and feelings that come along with that? How do you keep persisting in the face of that? All right. So this is another aspect of the writing, being a writer way back, is stories continue in my head. So there's a bit of an OCD. They need to be written. Even when I was working in a corporate vocation, traveling around the country, around the world, maybe a visual artist continues to doodle all the time. I was doing thought exercises. This cannot be turned off. If I don't write every day, in some way, shape, or form, I develop anxiety. There, there's a physical conditioning that either by nurture or nature, I now experience that I need to exercise that muscle. Otherwise, it's, it's going to distract me from just enjoying or participating in anything else. And so that in itself becomes a driving factor. So just because literally, regardless of the obstacles of getting the writing published out there and all of that, the actual process, the creation itself, it, it's not because you're not doing it just for the sake of getting that work published and sold. You're doing it in part because it's a self-care tool and a coping mechanism for you, it sounds like. It is a self-care tool and a coping mechanism. I've always had a very busy mind. I had to take medication for it in the past. And I, I don't take medication now, but I don't want... I'm always leery when I hear people of any platform say that they've overcome. But for example, I also, I also suffer from diabetes, which is brought on largely from the work that I was doing. Apparently, working 22 hours a day internationally takes a physical toll. One of the other reasons why I bowed out of, of doing that type of work, I excelled at it until it uh, basically put me in the hospital. So I don't want people to think that if they develop this tool or whatever, if, if they are in a situation where under pressure, they need help through therapy or medication, that would probably continue. The reason why I don't need any external medication to help with those busy thoughts, being sensitive to the world around me, being open to all types of stimuli, is I'm no longer working in that high pressure situation that I did work in. I no longer have those demands. It's like, keep it simple, right? I, I go to bed around the same time. I get up around the same time, not just for my mental health, but for my physical health of dealing now with diabetes and wanting to be around my children to grow. And I'm on a, I'm on a diet regimen. Now, who knew all these things? Don't drink so much. You know, get, get sleep at night and, and eat right. Get some exercise. Who knew <laughs> all these things will work? But the diet and the exercise alone is enough. I think it goes without saying that because you're a writer and not a doctor, none of what he's saying should be construed as some kind of guidance for everyone or an answer for everyone. And I know you're not trying to position it as that. Yeah, but I, I, I do I do get people hear things like, oh, I want to try that. It's working for Daniel Smith. And it's, yeah, it works for me. There's a lot of great conditions in my life. I had some great success in technology. I now have the ability to you know, write. And then now I've had some great success in writing. And we were talking about starting out and the challenges. That was when I started my writing career 12 years ago. This is all, this is bared fruit. So these are peach trees. This is a peach tree career. And bless anyone that writes that first book and they get pulled out of their day job. And, and that's them. And, and, and at the same time, you know, try to do that twice. Good luck. Sometimes you have to go get water. Sometimes you have to keep going back to the well. And fortunately for me, quieting the beast, keeping the tigers at bay, I've created a job for myself. See, this is where the anthology series really supplements because I make it kind of part of the parameter that I have to include a short story or include something in each issue. So 39 issues, 39 plus short stories or whatever. So it's, that's a, a really constructive use of a constraint. You're like, okay, I've got to include something. So here's a, it, it's a, it, like a constructive nudge to, I've got to create something here that helps to really encourage that writing process. And it, it's how, it's how I live my life. Some people call it grit. Some people say they're driven. I mean, this is, you don't fall out of a cornfield, <laughs> right? You don't fall into Kalamazoo. You don't fall into Manhattan. You don't fall into a novel. These things are all done on purpose and they're almost all done against adversity. I want to take what you said and build on that, that there are constraints. So it's turning constraints into 
productivity. I tell you, as a sensitive rebel, what I don't rebel against, what I need, and this may sound contrary to what I rebel against, but acceptance, personal acceptance. Now, you said, wait a minute, Daniel, you, you said you're against settling. All right. Yeah, I, I am. I am. Because I'm just not going to accept it until I believe it's gotten to the point, the best that it can be. So the acceptance is measurable, right? But it, but it's about accepting your surroundings. I, no one's going to get anywhere saying, hey, man, all, I'm having grilled cheese again today with government cheese. That sucks. You double down. You know, you get some pasta and you learn to make macaroni and cheese. You, know, you double down. You embrace it from the great misguidance of fast times at Ridgemont High. No matter where you're at, is the place to be. And there's some truth to that. I think it's the acceptance or acknowledgement of, of the situation and circumstances is what allows us to see it, feel it, and make choices around it, which we can't do if we're in denial or minimization or not looking at it, right? It's like, how are you going to be able to get directions from point A to point B if you can't acknowledge where point A is? Good luck. So, you know, if you go to the doctor and say, it hurts when I go like this, they're going to say, don't go like that. It drives me a little nutty if I don't write. Well, hey, fortunately today, I I don't have to have a legal pad and and a pencil like back in the day. Now I can use my cell phone. I can use a use a computer. If, If need be, I can do it in my head at this point. I write quite a bit of prose just focusing and pulling it together. This isn't, again, this isn't an isolation to me. I, I think in some, to some degree, you will not meet a successful writer judging success as somebody who has completed a piece of writing. We'll just say that's successful. Let's just take the bar to complete it. You might say, but that was really a crappy self-help book or a really crappy novel. But I say, yeah, but the guy's a novelist. If you did it, you win. And I think if you talk to any writer about the spectrum, they're going to say, well, I was falling behind, but I had that deadline. I had that constraint. And all of a sudden, in the 10th hour, in the 11th hour, (laughs) all this creativity came gushing out. So what if you harness that? What if you harness that? What if you channeling of adversity? And don't wait. Don't wait until you're on the ledge. Take each step looking for a way to overcome that adversity. Anticipate, you know, the ledge is coming up. The way to tackle most any constraint not all constraints. I've often thought that if I go blind, that one might be the tough one. But so fortunately, I have, I still have sight. These are done incrementally. These are done one step at a time. Sentences are written one word at a time. And getting caught up in whether or not you sold 10,000 of your last book or only 1,000 or you sold 1 million, that doesn't affect at all unless you let it the first sentence of your new project. You have to take control of that. You have to own it. You have to own it. If you say, I'm stuck at home writing, I'll go with this last year. I know a lot of writers have gone through that. How does one write at home? All right. Well, that's how we do it. And that's what we do now. But you say, but I liked it when I wrote like that. It worked better when I wrote like that. Yeah, but it isn't like that anymore. You could have, with the canyons, gone and just complained about how it should be or why is it like this or whatever. But it sounds like you have evolved and adapted it recognizing the reality of the situation, whether or not you like it, whether or not it's good. And we could discuss that forever. But what you've done is gone, it is what it is. Let me work with that and have been able to continue to produce it and grow it as a result. My wife and I, in doing what we love, been serial business makers, entrepreneur fine. That's a great word. Sexy, particularly out there in California, I know. But it's a practical matter. A, A friend of mine, I worked at a coffee shop in grad school. And then when I opened up my coffee shop, I came back from Europe and I sat in his basement and he went over like all the things to do and all the things that, and one of the things he said that was really wise is, you know, owning a business is that tough. You drive down the street and you look to the left and look to the right. And these are all businesses and they're owned by most of my mom and pops. At least they were back in the nineties. Maybe as well. And that's changed. And so these are things that are doable. Now, whether or not your business succeeds, whether or not you're right for the business, whether or not your business is in the right location, there's a myriad of factors. But again, going back to the idea that you have to settle and say, wow, the marketplace in its current form does not adhere to what I'm writing. I guess I'm done. No. It's like, well, if I need to create a small press, I will create a small press. I find that other author friends don't have that. They're like, wow, that's amazing that you can do that. It was something that was never a deterrent to me. We do another version of Frontiers of Speculative Fiction that we only put that anthology out once a year or so, and and we we only got two so far, but that's all award-winning, the Nebula and Hugo award-winning writers. Again, I didn't know these people before I knew them. I still don't know them, but nobody says you can't be a small press and send an email to somebody and say, hey, I'm a small press. I'd like to include your story. I'm, I'm doing this. 
Sometimes they say, you know what? I'm working on that novel I worked on last year. I can't do anything. That happens a lot. That's a polite way of saying no, I think, or whatever. But then sometimes they're like, sure. And sometimes, and I've developed some great friendships this way, established authors, and I like to think that I've become that myself, are eager to give back. They're like, yes, I'd love to have a story in your small press. I, I know a particular author that she writes something for her publisher, and she has a great contract where they allow her then to write something for the small presses and for the indie community. And that, and that way, she's become a hybrid author is what we call that. And it's elevating everybody. And I think that's a great aspiration to do that. When you remove the barriers, when you conceptually just remove them and have the perception, remember we're going back early on, we talked about seeing things from a different angle. If you don't see that barrier there, it's not there, maybe. Or maybe it is. You're just not seeing it. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Something I'm, I'm struck by and listening to you talk about this is, and I've had this sense from other writers I've talked to, is that writers as a group, they seem to be more mutually supportive and encouraging than some other, uh, I'll say, industries or, or groups of people that I found, which is, is really interesting to me. Would that match your take? And if so, well, like, yes, what do you think? That- yes. There are little tribes and they're, they're in they're the circles, the intrinsic circles. I remember studying Russell and he talked about the intrinsic circles. So you have your you know, your wife, and then maybe your wife and kids is next to her, and then you maybe your family, and then you your friends, and then your the people you do podcasts with, you know, it keeps going out your community. And so with that, there are little tribes and some of them overlap. So I'm a member of the horror community because I've written a couple of uh, speculative fiction horror stories. I'm a member of the science fiction community. I'm a, I'm a member of the community of writers, all kinds of, you know, uh, one fellow there is writing a musical. This is in New York and the kind of the leader of the group. She writes short fiction. I met her because she was actually published in the canyons on submission. And I, I saw on her header that she had this group, this nonprofit uh, that she's part of. And I asked her about it and, and she, I thought, this is great. This is something I want to be in it. And so those aren't, ju- they aren't just fiction writers, all different types of writing going on. So these are different groups I'm in and all of them are pretty much about supporting each other. My wife uh, has been insightful. To liking it to acting. It's the writing community is very much like an acting community. There's a whole industry to help you learn to act. There's a whole novice industry. There's the amateur industry. And then there's other professional. And they're jerks that you know, won't work with anybody to do anything. And they, what's that old, old uh, saying? People you see on the way up are the same people you see on the way down. Yeah, be careful with that. And I've, and I've been in this game long enough professionally now. To have seen that. I've seen some people rise and some people fall. I've, I've also been in it long enough to not get so worried about getting the next thing out right away. I'm, I'm currently shopping three novels at a very leisurely pace because I, I know that killing myself to release them at breakneck speed and, and chasing down my agent and, and saying, why aren't you getting, why aren't you selling? Isn't going to change the end game any way at all. So it sounds like, though, we can look for some additional things coming from you at some point down the road, since you've got a few works that you're in the process of shopping. Yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about each one. One of them is I started writing some story, of a mercenary story. I was very impressed with some work some friends did in science fiction, military sci-fi. Again, my stories are written from the human perspective, so it's people experiencing these things. is isn't so much about uh, the military aspect. By no means would I ever venture. I, I have not been in the military, and though I do vet my stories through veterans to ensure that I haven't you know, screwed up too badly, this isn't a veteran story, but it's people that are just, again, in adverse situations or challenging situations and how they over- overcome them. So that started off to I think it's a 80,000 word novel that I'm currently shopping. And I'm also, I've also finished polishing up the second in a book that it was a USA Today bestseller. It was on Wall Street Journal. It was snubbed by the New York Times. I, I didn't make the cut for that that week, but this is like book two in that series. So I, I'm not sure if I'm going to release it through my imprint or release it through another imprint and talks about that. But then you get the whole paperwork of what do you want to give up as far as ownership of that and then uh tertiary one is also from the kings of the dam there were a lot of short stories that were thematic that i pulled back out and in the industry we call it a fix-up novel so novels like dune and novels like foundation those weren't written from page one to the end as a novel they were written as basically short stories in the same universe and then tied together and so i ended up with enough short stories in this canyons universe to create basically a canyons novel and that's the, that's my current work in progress, but I'll be shopping that soon. You know, depending on the, the market and the way of the world and what, 
what gets published in the next year or two, readers can expect a few things from me. So it's definitely a watch this space kind of thing. And now for people who would like to learn more about you, more about your work, uh, where's the best place for them to go online to, to track you down and, and learn more about you and what you're uh, writing as? So the, so DanielArthurSmith.com. I don't update it as often as I should, I should, but they can go on there and get a summary of my work. On that site, it includes email links. It includes a, a Facebook link. I probably spend more time of any time on Facebook. I used to spend a lot of time on Twitter, but I couldn't interact as well. And some friends of mine putting on a film festival were having great success on Facebook maybe eight years ago. And, and, and it's more, some wisdom that was given to me is you get out what you put into it. So I started putting more energy into Facebook. And I ended up meeting a few communities. So I, I spent most of my time there. So I could be reached there. Yeah, I'll take a friend request from uh, readers or writers alike. Yeah. What I'll do is I'll put, as I always do, put links in the show notes for those things. So folks who want to track you down can do so. Now, if you were to recommend them, someone is, okay, Daniel, I'm interested in your stuff. Where would be an entry point for me as far as in your different various works? What would be the thing I I should start with? So one one of my favorites to suggest or speculative fiction because it's science fiction, but it's not really about science fiction. It has an overlying science fiction theme. What if AI could write a novel? Which, by the way, from the time I wrote that and today, now AI, a friend at Columbia and then another author friend in, in um, Indonesia, they're actually working with AI too right now. The story is about more than that. And it's titled an homage to another author because that's a, a sub-theme is there's no more authors. What happens to the authors that are there today, right? What if, what if a machine could do your job like so many other jobs? The book is titled Hugh Howie Lives. So that's the overall what it's about, but it's not about that at all. It's about uh, relationships. It's about working in the world around us. I would definitely recommend Hugh Howie Lives as a starter to not too thick science fiction and, and a story about people. And I'll second that recommendation. We were talking before uh, the beginning here about it since I I had read that book. I think it's a really interesting read. And it's a book like for me, any fictional work, whether it's a book, whether it's a movie, whether it's a TV show, I always appreciate things that I can enjoy on different levels or in different ways. And I think Hugh Howie Lives has that element. There's very much the relationship element you could focus on and appreciate. There's the aspect of writing and creation and what is that. There's the technology future thing. So there's all these different pieces that you could focus on. So it makes for a a very interesting mix that I I would think a lot of people actually could enjoy. Yeah, thank you for the compliment. I'm I'm glad you had a chance to read it. It, Writers love the book because it's about writers and the and the idea of writing and authorship and so i've had such positive views and then people that aren't writers love it for different reasons so that book has been a gift that keeps on giving definitely worth checking out i would say so daniel appreciate you coming on the show taking the time to talk about your journey uh, about your writing and there's a lot of, of really i think cool things here that are going to be of value to my audience and going to just make for an interesting show so thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today certainly That's it for this episode of the Sensitive Rebel Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. You can get show notes, information about my coaching services, or just send me a note at sensitiverebel.com. Until next time, keep moving forward.